He removed God from culture, which I would say is a pretty accurate version of where things are at today in the West, is that uh, you have to find your identity somewhere. You have to find and define yourself by something. And usually we look to, we look to things that can't support the weight of our, and the stress of putting our worth and identity on it. And so what winds up happening is when you and I put our identity in our marriage, or our family, or that we're a city people, or that we're rural people, or that we're Albertan, or that we're farmers, or we're bisexuality, or, or, or gender, whatever it is, those things cannot withstand the weight that you're putting on it. And what winds up happening is they collapse and they are taken away, and when that happens, you collapse because you're standing on it. And I think a lot of people from all the way from New York, all the way to Three Hills, really struggle with this on some level. I was sharing with you that when people are sick in this hospital here, and they told that they are no longer able to work, and they get a pastor to come in and, and pray with them, one of the more frequent things that is brought up is like, I can't farm the land anymore, I don't know who I am anymore. There are people in Three Hills in this county who define themselves by their job, by the fact that they're a teacher, by the fact that they're a realtor, by the fact that they're an oil patch or whatever, and when that's taken away from them, their sense of identity is taken away from them too, and they collapse, and it's hurting us and destroying us as a culture, and we have this great opportunity to say and speak into that and say you can find and define yourself by Jesus, and you don't have to worry about anything collapsing. There are three particular ways that I see us hurting, hurting us in a very uh, real way. Number one, we aren't able to enjoy good things. You wanted the slide for me there. Benjamin Nugent is an award-winning New York Times uh, essay writer, and this is what he said. When good things, when good writing was my only goal in life, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. And then he went on to say, For this reason, I wasn't able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell whether something I had just written was good or bad, because I needed it to be good because my identity was found in it. In order to feel sane, I lost the ability to cheerfully interrogate how much I liked writing. In other words, he wanted to write, but he couldn't enjoy it anymore because he put so much pressure on it to define him. When you and I make, make our identity, our career, or a particular body, or a gender, or a particular relationship, those things stop being good and they crush us because we are putting pressure on them to validate us. And so what winds up happening is when those things don't, uh, don't measure up, we fall and collapse underneath it. Number two, in order to feel good about ourselves, we have to destroy others. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, and I want you to hear this very clearly. He says, we're not really proud of having lots of money. We're proud of having more money than the next person. We're not proud of being smart. We're proud of being smarter. 
Imagine if you were the best violinist in Three Hills, and then you go to New York City, and you get off at Penn Station, and you realize that the person who's playing the violin and begging, and people are putting money in the violin case, is a better violinist than you. And suddenly, all that self-esteem you had, because you were the best violinist in the small town, goes down the toilet. Why? Because ultimately, listen to this very, very carefully, any identity achieved rather than received has to be excluded. Do you hear that? If you find your identity in something that you achieve, if you define your value and your worth by what you do rather than a gift from God, you've got to exclude others. In other words, you feel better because you, your other people aren't as good as you. They're not as enlightened as you. These people aren't conservative as you. They're not as holy as you. They aren't as hardworking as you. They aren't as insightful as you. They didn't come from the same school or background as you. They aren't as uh, Canadian as you or as Albertan as you. And that's how you feel good about yourself, by comparing yourself to other people and trashing them. Okay? In order to feel good, when we find our identity in anything but God, we've got to destroy other people in order to feel good about ourselves. Lastly, we waste our time trying to find ourselves. You live about 80 years, and I know that there are some people who are in their 40s that are still trying to, quote, find themselves. And so what winds up happening is they're on a journey to find themselves, to figure out who they are, and they're 45 or 50 years old. Their life is almost half over. I would way rather spend my life knowing who I was at the very early outset and enjoy that, rather than be on a journey to discover who I am, only to realize that I've wasted half my life in that journey. Couldn't you? We waste so much time trying to be self out so trying to figure out who we are and all that kind of stuff. And to me, that is just a waste of time. I'd rather know who I am and enjoy every single second of life that God has given me. Wouldn't you? Right. And so here's what I think. I think that it is a crisis of identity going on in the Western culture. And that's why we find our, we, we work so hard to find our identity in our careers, or our relationships, or our gender, and I think God's word speaks very plainly into that. Everybody is longing and searching for meaning, and there is a great longing for worth and purpose, and it's actually destroying us. And we need to be evangel evangelists and tell the world that their worth isn't found in their body, isn't found in their career, isn't found in their relationship, it's not found in their looks or their gender, it's found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Can someone please say amen? Amen. amen. So that leads us to the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians doesn't tell us everything about our identity. It's not exhaustive in that. You would have to read the whole Bible to get a good picture of it. But it says three things that I believe that are crucial to our identity. Number one, it tells us that we are one people. 
in chapter 3. Number 2, it says that we are saved by grace in chapter 2. And number 3, it tells us that we are blessed people. We are blessed with the best. And we've been spending the last three weeks talking about our blessings in Christ. And what those are. And I've been spending time, and I know it's going slow, and I know you might rather me like pick up the pace and move forward, but I, I don't want you to miss how blessed you are in Jesus. How much of the good gifts, we're going into Christmas time, how much of the, the best that Jesus has to offer in the entire world is yours. And we talked about this, and just to recap, we said, uh, if you want to hit the next slide, is that you are blessed with holiness that you are blessed with blamelessness, and you are adopted. Say it with me, I am holy. I am, holy. I am blameless. I am and I am adopted. I am adopted. Not because of anything you did, but because of the person of Jesus Christ. That whole thing, I am holy, I am blameless, and I am adopted, is all found within the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, you have to, in order for this to apply to you, you have to come to the place in your life where you're trusted, or where you trust in Jesus. Here's what I need you to, uh, I think someone needs to hear today. In Jesus Christ, your life is not a mistake. You, are, you have never been unwanted. You have never been alone. You have never been unloved. God has made you out of the depth of his own life and love, and has called you into a being at the right time and place. He has prepared a way for you and given up his very son for you. How much more can Jesus prove that he loves you than to lay down his life for you? You are his delight. It says in Ephesians that he saved you according to his good pleasure. People always ask the question, why did he save me? You want to know the reason? Because he enjoys it. He enjoys the fact that you are saved. You are not a burden. You are not an intrusion. You belong to Jesus. You are one of his very dear and loved children. You are his treasure. Just because he wants you to be. Not because of what you've done or achieved. You were once his enemy. And he has made you his child. He loves you very much. And I know that because not only did God want you, because, here, here, I should rephrase that. I know that because only a good God that loved you and wanted you would redeem you and forgive you. And that's what I want to say and I want to focus on our blessings today is that I want you to understand that along with being holy, along with being redeemed, or sorry, adopted, and along with being blameless, you are redeemed and you are forgiven. Say with me, I am redeemed. And I am forgiven. And that's what I want to talk about today. The main idea, if you want to take notes, is this. Is that in order to show how rich in grace God is, He excessively forgave and redeemed you. Let me say that again. In order to show how rich in grace God is. To show how much money he has, or I guess how much grace he has. He forgave you and redeemed you lavishly. 
Listen to what this, this verse again. I want, to, I, want to, I want to hit it very clearly. In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. And so we, um, I want to talk a little bit about what this means and how you're blessed with redemption and goodness and how this is a good thing and how you should be blessed by it. What is redemption? Well, redemption simply just means this. It is the act of gaining or regaining a possession by clearing a debt. You understand that? The idea of redemption, redeeming something, getting it back, is gaining possessions, in this case you and me, of something exchanged for clearing a debt. The Bible talks a lot about, uses the analogy of slavery when we talk about sin. Romans 6.16 says this, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of them whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or obedience which leads to right righteousness? So when we talk about sin, you need to understand that the Bible says this, is that you are a slave to it, that you are powerless over it. That you can do nothing but succumb to it every single day. No matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, your knee-jerk reaction is always to rebel against God. This is the doctrine of total depravity. And I, there is no one that seeks God. And what the Bible is saying here is that you are slaves to either two people. You're slaves to God or you're the slaves to sin. And when you are a slave to sin, you are powerless to rise above it. Right? You see, uh, the Bible says that the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another, so that you do not do whatever you want to do. You are still controlled by the flesh. You see that our sinful nature is always vying for control of my heart. And the desires that it follows will produce immortality, sexual immorality, impure thoughts, and eagerness for lustful pleasure, idolatry, participation in demonic activities, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, divisions, the feeling that everyone is wrong except you and your little group, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and all kinds of sin, according to Galatians 5, chapter 9. Or chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Have any one of those things shown up in your life? The answer better be yes. Every single solitary thing that I just listed here is present in this building right now. I want you to look to the left really quickly. Look to the right. And I want you to consider that you are sitting beside some people that will create, who will live sexual moral lives, you have impure thoughts, there are adulterers, there are people that have participated in demonic activities, 
There are people that are hostile here. There are people that are quarrel here. There are people that are jealous here. There are people that have outbursts of anger here. There are people that have selfish ambition here. There's divisions here. The feeling that every, there's feeling that everything is wrong except you and your little group. There's envy. There's drunkenness. There's probably wild parties in this whole room. If we were to open up our entire lives and everyone were to share every deep, dark, and secret, we would probably throw up a little, wouldn't we? Okay? You are a slave to sin. This sickness is woven in our very nature and we are powerless to rise above it, above our hurts, above our resentments, our unhealthier behaviors and our attempts to control. Our lives have become unmanageable. This is and always will be very step one in accepting Jesus Christ is to know and understand that you are a slave to sin and there is nothing that you can do about it. Our lives have become unmanageable. And you know what? It breaks God's heart. It says this in Scripture, like the rest, we were uh, we were by like the rest, we by nature were deserving of God's wrath. Listen, I, I know a lot of you struggle with the idea of an angry God versus a loving God, but I want to encourage you not to see it as either God is angry or that he is loving, but that he angry because he loves. Okay? The Bible says that God is slow to anger. So when God is angry, it must be for a good reason, is it not? It's not such a hard concept to understand that God's anger is born out of his love from a human perspective. When someone dies before their time due to an illness or an accident, what do we say? It's not right. And there is this sense of injustice that you feel. There is this cry that we have of vindication in our heart. When a child, when a young child dies from cancer, you can follow the parent's anger, can't you? You might, you can appreciate the fact that not only are they mourning, they're upset. They're angry. Do you think it's angry because they hate their kid? No. Why are they angry, church? Because they love them. If we are allowed to get angry over injustice, over evil, then why isn't God? There is a story of Jesus who heals his friend Lazarus, and on the way to heal his sick friend, Lazarus dies. And by the time that Jesus gets there, he's consoling the people and he's grieving them. And in John chapter 11, verse 33, it says this. It says that when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was genuinely moved, genuinely, genuinely moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. Trans, other translations will say he is greatly angered. It bugged him. The weeping, the loss, the death, the death irked him. And you know what? When Jesus, when, when Jesus sees, or God sees sin, it bugs him, it irks him. It, there's this cry of vindication. You know, right now, as we're sitting here, God has to watch someone in the city of Calvary die of having no food. You don't think that bugs him? Right now, across this entire country, people are going to church, 
And right now, churches are, the, the, some services are ending, and there are people walking out without being, without anyone noticing that they were there. Do you not think that God gets enraged by that? Right now, across this country, there are kids who are putting pillows over their heads as they live, try to drown out the sound of their dads mercifully beating their mothers. Do you not think that God gets angry by it? Why does God get angry by it? Because he loves his children. And again, and it makes him so angry that he goes this, someone's got to pay. Someone has got to right this wrong. Someone has to make that injustice. And you know what the payment is for all the stuff that we, how we treat each other? It's death. Romans tells us that the cost of your sin is your life. So, you might be asking, why is this good news? Why is that getting so, you know, hard about this? Because listen to this. This passage is about how you were blessed. And redemption is the idea of possessing something in exchange for a payment. What was the cost of your freedom? It was the blood of Jesus. I need to stop here really quickly and point out something. This is just a theological nitpicking thing. But there are some people that believe that the debt was paid to the devil. I want you to understand that the Bible never says that. God doesn't owe Satan. So who then was the debt paid to? The debt was paid to God himself. The, the payment of Jesus is a death to satisfy God's wrath, all God's wrath, all his anger was poured out on the person of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like, imagine, imagine this hand represents you, and imagine that this hand represents God. And imagine that, well, I better, that's the Bible, I better not use it to represent sin. <laughs> imagine that, I'll use this one instead. Imagine that this book represents a sin. There's a barrier between you and God. The Bible says on him, on Jesus, was laid the sins of the world. What does this mean for you? That you are now free to have a relationship with God. You have been redeemed. Can anyone say amen to that? And you know what? It is so good that we've been redeemed. Because we, we carry a lot of guilt in our hearts, don't we? We carry a ton of guilt. Guilt occurs when I know that I've done something wrong and I cannot make it right. And even if from here to eternity I never do it again, I will carry that guilt deep within my heart because I have no way of getting rid of it. My problem is, is that I don't really know how to handle the guilt and neither do you. And so I bury my guilt and you bury yours, but it's there just the same, and we do no favors to each other by glossing over that, that fact. You and I carry a debt in our hearts that we can never pay back for, or legitimately blame others for, or chalk up the circumstances beyond our control. In one sense, it doesn't matter how badly I've been treated, or by whom uh, I've been treated, there, or how much they've hurt me, and there are relationships where I've hurt others, and I am 100% percent 
responsible for that, even if they were the ones that provoked me. Okay? And we have no way of dealing with that guilt. Do you know what man's best answer to guilt is? You want to take a guess? What's our best way of dealing with guilt in the 21st century? Drugs. Close. I would say it's this. Our best answer to guilt in the 21st century is to diagnose it as a, its symptoms as a disease, an addiction, and a syndrome or a condition. And that's actually very, very, very bad. So when people are addicted, there's this theory out there that addiction is actually disease, and that, that's okay. And so you've got to treat it like that. And I'm saying to you, that's ridiculous. Okay? <clears throat> a number of years ago, in the church that I served, way back in Vancouver, there was an issue that I just found out recently about where the pastors actually had to confront somebody who was seducing the young women in the church. And so he called them up in front of the board, and you never want to be in front of the board, <laughs> okay, when you're dealing with this. And he said, you know what, you've got to stop him. You know what his response was? Do you know what his, oh, do you know what his response was? Take a guess. I can't help it, I'm a sex addict. That's what we do. How many of you are fathers of daughters in this room? How many of you would let that fly? I didn't even think so. It doesn't matter how much psychology, philosophy, or 12-step programs you go through, and I'm a fan of 12-step programs, if you know you've been selfish or done something that has hurt someone else, you know good and well that you've done something wrong and there's nothing that you can do to remove it. And quite honestly, you should be very happy that you people that here at church we don't label your symptoms as diseases. For if we did, that would mean that you can never get rid of the guilt in your heart. What do you suppose God's answer for guilt is? Any takers? I just read it in the passage today. God's answer to the guilt that we feel is forgiveness. John chapter 3 verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Some of you need to hear that today because somehow you think you're a lost cause. Friends, that is the furthest thing from the truth. You are carried in his image. It might be a broken image, but you're still his. You can find freedom from the brokenness, from the abuse, from the abandonment, from the neglect, from the loneliness, if you come to a place where you let him forgive you. But for Jesus to cure you, you have to face the truth that you have a sinful nature, that, that you are guilty, and that there's nothing that you, are, you can do to, do to fix it other than accept the fact that you are forgiven. That's what he's done with our sins that we're not letting anyone, uh, we don't let anyone know about. That's what he's done with the sense of guilt that is ruining our lives and relationships. Do you know one of, the, one of the reasons that guilt is so bad is that you make decisions in your relationships out of guilt and that effectively destroys your relationships? This, God's answer to guilt and pain is forgiveness. Amen? 
So here's what I want you to say. This should be very encouraging for you. Not only are you blameless, not only are you holy, not only did he choose to adopt you as a part of his family, you are redeemed, you are bought back from slavery to sin, and you are forgiving. Isn't that encouraging? Can you see why? Can you see why when when there's no punctuation and the scholars believe that's because Paul is being enthusiastic. He's enthusiastic. God's forgiven. Do you know what Paul did? He killed a lot of people. How do you accept the forgiveness that Jesus has for you? Well, I'm going to close by having a few thoughts about it. Number one, true forgiveness is always preceded by confession. There is a difference between saying, I did it and I don't care, and I did it and I was wrong. Confession isn't about admitting your mistake. Confession, confession the word confession, literally means to speak the same thing. So when we talk about confessing our sins to God, what we are talking about is that we are in agreement with God that what we did was wrong. True forgiveness needs to start with the fact that you agree with God that what you've done is wrong. Number two, true forgiveness requires that you stop making excuses and take responsibility for what you've done. You start by owning off to what you did. You stop making excuses and stop making promises and you start and you stop making promises that you can't fulfill. The most difficult part of actually apologizing is to say, I did it. It doesn't matter what other people did. It doesn't matter if my sin isn't as bad as someone else's. It doesn't matter if I was tricked into it. It doesn't matter if I was abandoned as a kid. It doesn't matter if I was beat to a pulp when I was 13. I did this and I was wrong. I am responsible for my own actions and I owe you God. Do you know that it is harder to say, I did it, than I'm sorry? You go try ahead of your marriages today. Instead of saying, sorry, the next time your wife has an issue with you, say, you're right and I was wrong. Yeah, you laugh because you know it's hard. Okay. You try it. It's a lot tougher. Why is it tougher? Because... We don't want to accept the guilt. And we don't know what to do with the guilt once we've accepted it. But what I am teaching you today is how to, how to deal with the guilt. You can find forgiveness, but it requires that you stop making excuses. Listen, if you want a really good idea of how to apologize to someone, stop making excuses. So if you're late for work, if you're late coming home, here's what you don't say. I'm sorry, honey, I was late. Traffic was, there was a combine was stuck on the road. Don't make the excuse. Just say, I was wrong. Or I was late. I did it. See how hard it is. Number three, true forgiveness means you need to decide who will pay for the offense. My sin needs to be paid for. Deep within each of us exists a longing for justice. 
And God placed this within us as reflecting of his character and justice. And here's what I need you to understand. In forgiveness, the for, true forgiveness means that the innocent party pays the greatest price. Okay? The innocent party in forgiveness always pays the greatest price. So year, years and years and years ago, I had a student loan. I had $10,000 in debt, and I had $4,000 from the BC government, $6,000 from the federal government. And one day, I got a letter in the mail saying that they completely forgave me my provincial student loan. Okay? Now, here's the question. Who paid for that student loan? Right? The government did, or the taxpayers did, or whatever you want to look at. In forgiveness, some, the innocent party always pays the bigger price. And in this case, the innocent party is Jesus. Jesus always pays the, the bigger price. It's not that you, no one paid the price for your sin, it's just you didn't and Jesus did. Okay? And you have to make a decision here about who is going to pay for your sin. You are either going to let Jesus pay for the price of your sin, or you're going to pay the price yourself. You can't accept Jesus' forgiveness if you plan on paying him back. If you're going to let Jesus forgive you, you need to humble yourself. You, if you are going to let Jesus forgive you, you're going to let you're going to have to let Jesus pay for it. And if you're going to try to pay for it on your own, it's like saying this: "Thanks for dying, Jesus, but I don't need it." How arrogant! Fourthly, you need to cut yourself some slack. I know this doesn't sound very deep, but it's critical to the process. Some of you complain that others don't like you very much or cut you some slack. Then you continue to choose to dislike you and beat yourself up whenever you make a mistake. Some of you are way too hard on yourselves. You need to understand that God has forgiven you. And lastly, here's what I'm going to say. You need to stop trying so hard to forget your past mistakes. You actually can't do it anyway. In the Bible... God says that I will remember your sins no more. Hebrews 18, or sorry, Hebrews 8, verse 12. The problem is that we've confused remembering no more with forgetting. God doesn't actually forget your sins. He's omniscient. He knows everything. So what does remembering my sins no more really mean? Remembering my sins no more means that you choose no longer to recall them to your mind, relive them or rehearse them or hold them against yourself. Your debt has been paid in full by Jesus, and that is good enough for Jesus. Okay. So how do you know if you've actually truly been in a place where you've accepted forgiveness? I want to say two things and then I'm close. I'm going to say that you know that you've come to the place where you believe you've forgiven if you can take a compliment. False humility all often shows up when we receive a compliment and downplay it while all the while hoping the person will continue talking about it so we can bask in the compliment rather than accepting it and giving quiet and authentic glory to God. We can take a compliment and just say, praise God for that, that's awesome. The other way I know that you accepted the forgiveness is when you can accept criticism. I've found that every time someone criticizes me, there's at least a grain of truth when it's in it, that I need to deal with it. Sometimes it's a very small grain, but it's there nonetheless. 
And I am not afraid of dealing or hearing when people say something bad about me. Because my identity isn't found in how much I achieved. It's the fact that I'm a forgiven person. Amen? Amen. So to recap, I just want you to... Uh, I'm going to call the Donald Lisa back up. and I just want you to, to read with me. Go back to the first slide where we talked about who we are, that we were, uh, that we were blessed. And I, want to, I want to read this out one more time. In Jesus, you are holy. Say it with me. I am holy. In Jesus, I am blameless. In Jesus, you are adopted. In Jesus, I am redeemed. In Jesus, I am forgiven. That's so awesome. You want to know something really cool? You know what is so awesome about the gospel is this. The message of the gospel tells us that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we would like to admit. And yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dare to believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the fact that we are redeemed and forgiven. I pray that we would not let it slide on how amazing it is that we have been forgiven in Christ and bought back and set free. Thank you, Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Let's all stand.